My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is produced in collaboration with Studio Pod Media. For information on our episodes, articles, and professional community, head to technicallyspeakinghw.com today. Let's get into the details of today's show. The creative director, Dan Maul, joins the show to talk about his career path and the moments that led him to start Superfriendly, his agency that's all about design systems. Dan shares his ethos and explains why he considers himself as an intentional person. We explore some of the key moments within the foundation of Superfriendly, and we talk about the practices that companies value the most when it comes to working with agencies. Listen and discover what design agencies and Hollywood movies have in common. Hey, everybody. My name is Harrison Wheeler, and welcome back to another episode of Technically Speaking. Today, my guest is Dan Maul, the founder behind Super Friendly. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Harrison. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Maybe give listeners a brief intro about yourself and what you do. Cool. My name is Dan Mall. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I have two daughters. I'm a designer, a developer, a creative director. I run my own agency. I've written a book and working on a second one. I love design things, making things, especially from nothing. I like teaching people how to make things. So that's most of my professional life. And then a couple of other personal things sprinkled in there. I like shooting photography. I like playing video games. I like playing music. I like playing basketball. I live just outside of Philly. Grew up just about born and raised in Philly with a, a stint in New York and New Jersey. So mostly an East Coast kind of person. And so you'll probably pick up an East Coast vibe from me. Nice, nice. Yeah, I've, I'm glad we got some more East Coast love on the show. Last year, last couple of years, there's been a lot of folks from Atlanta. So it's nice to get some, oh, some nice. East Coast folks. Yeah. You know, I love all the things that you're involved in because it's really kind of like centered around sort of like this creative kind of nature in, in terms of just like where you can insert yourself into. And so how would you say that's kind of changed your definition on what it means to to be a designer? Do you consider yourself a creative? What does that kind of path and journey kind of look like for you? So I consider everyone to be creative. Part of that's my worldview. You know, like I don't like using the word creatives because I think that like, in some ways, it excludes people like unintentionally that like, oh, this set of group is creative. And then like, and then there's other, right? And, and there's a bunch of other people who are not. And I'm like, I don't know. I think everybody has the capacity for it. I think that's part of my worldview as a, you know, I grew up Christian. I'm a Christian. And I'm like, I believe people were created in God's image and God creates stuff. And so we do too. Like we have the capacity for it. So I think that people have been in the same way that like every kid can draw. But then when kids become adults, there are things that stop them from drawing, like fear and insecurity and criticism and, and all that stuff. But if you if you unpack all that stuff and you remove that stuff, hey, an adult can draw again. <laughs> like so so I believe that I believe that really strongly. So I think a lot of the stuff that I do tends to be like trying to encourage myself, my family, my friends, and strangers that like they can make things because I think there's a lot of power in that, that that really changes people's lives. So, you know, that's kind of like my my ethos. My therapist has been asking me about my ethos lately. What's your ethos? And I'm like, I think it's that. I think it's that like everyone is a creator, you know, when we, we can do those things and and make good things in, in our lives and each other's lives. So you kind of mentioned as we're growing up, people kind of are like, nah, you know, expressing yourself is a little bit of a distraction from what you need to do. So how how does that show up when you're raising your kids? 
I imagine you have had all thoughts about this and you're like, hey, you know, when you're raising your kids, like, how does that show up? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's complicated. You know, it's like one of the things that I'm learning about having kids is it brings up all the stuff <laughs> about you as a kid, you know, in you learning how to be a parent. So my wife and I have the, those conversations all the time that like there are things, you know, my wife and I were brought up very differently. And that has you we can we can draw straight lines to this is why we are or aren't ambitious or this is why we have paths or don't have paths you know in certain seasons of our lives and so what does that mean for us raising kids so i mean we both my wife and i are creative people or are creators you know cuz i everybody is but like we actively encourage that in each other you know, if I want to go shoot some photos, she's like, yeah, go shoot some photos. You know, like if she wants to go, she's an interior designer. So it's like, you know, just yesterday we talked about like, we should just buy a building, you know, save some money and try to buy a small building so that she can design. Like she can just design and, you know, growing up, her mom would move around the room once a month, right? Which is very different than how I grew up, which is like, once we had the room set, it stayed like that for years you know, years. And so now like every, you know, every week, you know, I might go out for groceries and then come home and then our living room is moved around. And I'm like, this is great because it just shows like how creative she, and so, you know, our kids see that and we try to model a lot of that for our kids so that they can do things. And so my kids, they love writing, you know, they've been writing songs and I'm like, how are you writing songs? Like they're writing songs that, you know, they rhyme, the lyrics are clever, you know? And so we try to encourage a lot of, uh, well, like one of the rules that we have in our house is, for as much as you consume, you have to create that much too. So like, yeah, you can watch your iPad for a bit, but like can't watch iPad all day. So if you watch, you know, you watch an hour of a show, we'll spend an hour writing some music or drawing or, you know, running around outside. That's like a form of creation. So, you know, we try to encourage that. I don't know how that's going to pan out yet because my first time, you know, parenting, but we'll see. Yeah, I love that, right? Because it's about the environment. And I think also too, the tools today make it a lot easier for, for folks to, express themselves in, in any way as possible. It's funny because, you know, you talk about like moving a room around like once a month. I, I cannot imagine that ever happening because the only thoughts that come to mind is like the plastic runner on the ground or the couch yes. is wrapped in plastic. <laughs> There's a little bit of permanence totally. to that for me. <laughs> totally my house growing up too. Like we, like, we are we always living in a house or a museum? Yeah, it's like, are we in a house or a museum, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you go to my parents' house right now, you know, like, and no judgment on them, but like, it's the same exact house as when, when we grew up and same exact layout. And until, you know, my wife starts coming over and goes like, hey, how about we move this over here? My, my mom's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into some quick icebreakers before we get into the meat of the conversation. So maybe describe like, what is a day in a life for Dan? I have two kinds of days work-wise. Um, the first kind of day is, is a focus day or flow day. I block out all meetings. I don't have meetings those days as much as I can help it. And then I have meeting days. So Tuesdays and Fridays are my meeting days. I leave those totally open. And I have kind of the, I've decided in advance, like I'm not going to get anything. I'm not going to design anything those days. I'm not going to code anything those days. And then all the other days I try to be pretty relentless about. So on my flow days, usually I, I do four-hour blocks, uh, four hours in the morning, and then I break for lunch, and then four hours uh, in the afternoon. And then my kids come home, we'll play, eat some dinner, you know, hang out, watch a movie, you know, something like that. So that's generally my, my, what my workday looks like. And in that flow time, I'm trying to spend as much time designing, writing, thinking. I've been trying to make a lot of space for thinking lately. You know, um, Dan Eden has this great article about thinking is work. And I'm like, yes, thinking is work. So I find that the more space I have in my work, the better my work becomes. For those flow days, are they structured or is it just kind of go with the flow? 
So I try to structure the four hour block. So like I know, you know, tomorrow my four hour block is going to be, I'm going to spend that time writing because that's what I'm going to try to do. And then the four hour block in the afternoon, that's going to be comps that I need to do, you know, that I need to get out. So I try to structure them in that way, but not much more than that usually. Amazing. What is one word people would describe you as? Uh, probably intentional. Hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? I'm not terribly impulsive. And I like for the things that I do to mean something, even, even if what they mean is like, don't do that again. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Like, what am I trying to do? What am I trying to say? What am I trying to communicate? And I don't think I knew that about myself until a few people called it out. Like, you're very intentional. And like, as I started hearing that from people, I'm like, oh, I guess I am. All right, cool. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, was that like intentional sounds maybe a little bit sound like a Capricorn, but you know, that's just, that's just me because I'm a Capricorn (laughs) and I'm projecting, but, but like, how did you take that the first time? Were you like, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? Maybe, maybe take us through that. Seems like you've embraced it it now. Totally. And and from the first time I heard it from a friend, I saw it as a positive because I'm like, I think a lot of it was I I became a designer very early on. Like from, from when I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to be some sort of artist Right, so I'd always draw a lot. I'd always, uh, and then when, and then Toy Story came out, and I was like, "Aha! I want to be an animator. That's what I want to do." And then Lord of the Rings came out, right? And I was like, "Yes, uh, special effects, like movie, like something like that." And I went to school for that, and then I discovered design. So, like, I've been doing design work since I was in fourth grade. You know, so, like I remember being in fourth grade and like choosing fonts on the the paper or the essay that I was writing because it was like, I needed to make two pages, but it was one and a half. So I'm like, let me look at fonts that have slightly wider letters, right? And I didn't know anything about typography or kerning or whatever, but like I had that instinct that like some letters are wider than others in this font. So I could get away with a, a you know, one and a half pages actually being two pages. So I've always had that kind of instinct. And as I'm growing as a designer, I'm learning about what design is. And I learned that my favorite definition of design is from Jared Spool, which is design is the rendering of intent. So then years later, when somebody says you're intentional, that's their way of like affirming that I'm a designer. So like, I take that very positively. I take that as a, as a compliment that like, yeah, I'm trying to do something. And the fact that people see that and recognize that, that's really affirming to me. I love that. And I'm sure a lot of listeners wish you were their friend in middle school when it came to writing those papers. That's right. Yeah. I uh, I made a little bit of money doing that for other people too. I'll admit. Nice. So back in the day, we were selling CDs, but that was the wrong game to be in. We should have been helping people on their essays. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Just picking fonts. So one more icebreaker. What's something that you're currently obsessed with? Ooh, landscape photography. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Ah, I can't get enough. Tell us about that. Uh, I learned to shoot photography in high school because my mom had a manual camera. So I just picked it up. I took a class and then I put it away for years. And then I bought a digital camera. Didn't really do much with that. And in the last five years, um, my wife found this trip on Instagram, which was like taught by three photographers. And it was a trip to the Faroe Islands. And in the Faroe Islands, if anybody's ever been there, like you cannot take a bad photo. And that was one of the things I learned. Like no matter... and, And their pitch was any camera that you have we will, we will teach you how to shoot better with it. So like, you got an iPhone, we'll teach you how to shoot better with your iPhone. You got a DSLR, we'll teach you how to shoot better with that. So like everybody had different equipment and it was so cool just to be there and to make good images. I learned how addicting that was. 
you take a photo, it looks good. You want to take another one that looks good. <laughs> so, so ever since then, that was maybe five years ago now, I've just been addicted to that feeling of like going somewhere, especially somewhere that people don't go because that's like a unique moment for you. Like that's why I like shooting sunrise. Not everybody's up at sunrise. Sunset, you know, people are up. But sunrise, not everybody's up. So I'm going somewhere that other people aren't going. I'm capturing this moment that nobody else has. And then I get to share that with people. So it's just this interesting creative pursuit that's not work for me. And I don't want it to be, I'm not selling prints. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm addicted to the feeling of it. Yeah, it almost has to be a, a bit meditative in a sense too, to kind of be the first one there and the only one there because you're not only capturing the moment, but you're, you know, you're, you're able to kind of, it's almost like a memory piece. Cause like, I think for me, I have a very visceral reaction when I'm in a very crowded touristy place and you're jousting for camera position or there's people walking in front. So it's totally meditative. And you you have to be present because especially when you're shooting sunrise, you got to get there in the dark because you don't know where you're going to shoot yet. So I'm like out there with my headlamp. You know, I'm a little bit scared if I'm in like a shady area or whatever, right? Like, so I'm, I'm present. I'm very present of, of, you know, and aware of my surroundings. And then, you know, you're trying to pick your framing and you're trying to pick, and I've got my app and figuring out where the sun's going to, like all that stuff. There's no room for like, oh, I wonder what I'm doing for work later today. Like, there's no room for that. And I, I appreciate that about it. So you're at the point where you know, like the proper lens, how much light you need. Is that how deep you are into it? Yeah, I'm, I've got the technical stuff down. I'm still not a good photographer, though. But at least I'm not like, what does this button do? You know, like, what does ISO mean? Like, I know the technical stuff. Now it's just about making, you know, making good images. I see some stuff that people post on Instagram and I'm like, dang, how did they do that? So it's a craft that I want to grow for fun. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. And I, I love just kind of learning a little bit more about the folks on the show. And obviously, folks listening can can resonate with some of that as well. So again, thank you for walking us through that. So look, we're, we're talking to Dan, the creator. I'd love to maybe learn a bit more about sort of how you came to being into the writing, into the designing, into starting your own agency. You know, what were some of like the influences to, to really kind of get you to the point today? So I grew up in Philly. We weren't poor growing up, but we certainly weren't rich. So my parents are immigrants. My dad came from Pakistan. My mom came from the Philippines. And so I grew up in, in, uh, in urban Philly, or, which is urban culture. And one of the things that I saw was how just being able to draw like elevates you from, culture, you know, from the, the world that you're in. Being able to do something that I thought was simple, you know, that like I was talented at, like just kind of lifts you out of that. And then as I grew in that craft, you know, learning, you know, I would volunteer, I'll make my church's website, you know, like, I don't know how to do that. But yeah, I'm good. Hey, Dan, you're good at computers, right? Like, yeah, can you make us a website? Sure, we'll figure it out. You know, like, all right, you know, and, and then I'm learning whatever Dreamweaver or uh, image ready, or, you know, whatever the whatever it is, front page, you know, I was building stuff in, and just creating stuff and making stuff. And what I learned was like, you know, I was, I built my first website in eighth grade, seventh grade, something like that. And I was paid for it. So I was a professional in seventh grade. I got paid, I got paid 25 bucks to, to make this website, you know, for a, like a homeless ministry. So I was in seventh grade making 25 bucks. None of my other friends were in seventh grade making 25 bucks, you know, and they were hustling too, you know, like, so what I, what I learned really early is that people value design. Like, I don't know that I would have articulated it that way, but people value design. And if you can do something that other people can't do, people value that. And so that's kind of what got me into it. That like, as I started growing in that, learning more about it, I would I picked up Flash and I learned how to animate. And I like, and people would pay me for that stuff: fifty bucks here, seventy five bucks here, twenty five bucks here, and I would make money. 
And that money helped me do things. It helped me go places. And then, man, the first time somebody invited me to speak at a conference, I was like, wait, you're going to fly me somewhere? Like, you're going to pay for my plane and my hotel? This is great. You know, like, this is all. And I, and I just learned how transformative, like, just because I could push pixels around a screen, people will listen. <laughs> they'll, they'll hear me. They'll value me somehow, you know, and that's, that's really affirming. And that felt like a cheat code. That felt like, you know, growing up in North Philly and like being able to be flown out around the world years later. That's what an honor. And like, that feels like I'm cheating, but I'm like, I'm going to get everybody in on this cheat as, we, as I can. So like, I would start to teach people, hey, let me show you how to do it. You want to, you want people to pay you to speak about something? Here you go. This is how you do it. Like you, like you have an opinion about this, you do, you know, whatever, whatever that thing is. So that's, that's kind of how I got to, to doing what I do is just seeing what brings people value and what doesn't. You know, Some things are dead ends. Some things are things that everybody do. Some things are commodities. So what are the things that you could focus on that you're qualified at, you're good at, you love doing, and people value? And I started to go like, oh, that's what a good business looks like you know, over time. That like People pay you a lot of money to do things that you're good at and you love to do. That's a great business. And uh, you know, I didn't I didn't start my own business until like 13 years into into design. Like I worked at agencies for 13 years, but what got me into it was still like I remember seeing a, a website from Nike, and I was like, I want to be a web designer, like because this is cool. Because I wore I collected sneakers, you know, like and and I always wanted to to wear wear Jordans, you know, and we couldn't afford them, but like all right, well, Nike's making really cool stuff digitally. So I want to go work for Nike. And then as I learn more and more, oh, Nike doesn't make their own websites. They hire agencies to do Okay, so I'll go work at agencies. What agencies? So like that just kind of kicked off a whole like design agency digital journey for me. And then eventually starting my own business was because working at agencies was long hours. You know, I loved it. But I also, you know, I had a kid on the way. Like I wasn't spending a lot of time at home. I wanted to see my wife more. I wanted to see my kid more. And so we decided we would move from New York. We moved back to Philly, you know, because I was working in a bunch of agencies in New York, moved back to Philly and uh, started Super Friendly. And that was uh, almost 10 years ago. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story. I think, I think like there's a few things out of that story that I think comes to mind, right? And I've, I've always tried to articulate this, but I think like the first one is like design can legitimately take you places, right? And we can probably touch on this a bit later, but there is something to having your own agency, even freelancing, where you get to meet many people, learn about different types of businesses, what they do, have an idea if you like it or not, right? So that that's kind of one piece. I would also probably say when there's that sort of intersection between sort of the passion of like your craft and what you do, what kind of meets like sort of what would be the right adjective for something like Nike, something you admire? There's something when you have that intersection where the possibilities start to become, you know, I wouldn't say limitless, but it just opens up a whole new door to opportunity, right? Totally. Especially yeah. in terms of thinking. I think, um, I think you nailed it right there. Opportunity. That's the word to me. Like, and that's like yeah. literally the mission of Super Friendly right now, as it's stated, is to create better opportunities for those who wouldn't have them otherwise. Because that word opportunity, it's like, it's there and it's a combination of things. It's you have to have the luck, you have to have the preparation, you have to have the skill. And right there, that's where the opportunity meets, right? There's all these quotes about, I think Oprah has a good quote about that, that like, that's where, that's where opportunities happen. So you have to be prepared for it. You have to be prepared to get lucky. And once you get lucky, that's the opportunity right there. Mm, I love it. I love it. And you know, that third piece is obviously like centering that around your values, right? And so I really love kind of where this discussion is kind of going. So yeah, let's talk about Super Friendly. So what is Super Friendly and why the name? <laughs> okay, so uh, 
Super Friendly is an agency. I run it. I'm the founder and the CEO and the president or whatever and the janitor. You know, like I'm the only employee of Super Friendly. And the model has always been one of the things that I've been, I've always been talented at is meeting people and networking and like genuinely being interested in what people are doing. I'm, I'm a very curious person. I think that's a, a good skill for a designer to have in general. And I've always been curious about stuff, which is why I try a lot of things. I don't, I don't do well at a lot of things, at all those things, but I, but, uh, I'm curious. And so I like to try a lot of things. So Super Friendly's model is I have a network of lots and lots of people. Not all of them are people that want to be hired full time. You know, not all of them are people who want to work on the same thing all the time. There are also people who want to try things. So what I realized that what I could do, and this is born of some of the agency work that I, I did prior, is if we can collect the right people at the right time and give them the right incentive, man, we could make something amazing. Like, and it doesn't have to be you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, we'll, we'll employ them for the next hundred years, you know, or like indefinitely, like the model that it's based on. I call it the super friend model, but it's based on the Hollywood model, right? I didn't make that up. It's the way that Hollywood makes films, which is like, if you think about Leonardo DiCaprio, he's a 1099, <laughs> you know, like he's a freelancer. He doesn't work for it. He's not a W2 employee. He doesn't have a salary. But like that doesn't stop Hollywood from making millions and millions of dollars and making compelling stories that that engage people. Sure, there are flops, but there are also hits too. So like that model, I'm like, why don't we apply that to digital? Like because you know, empl- full time employment is one model, but there are people who value security over freedom. There are people who value freedom over security. There are people who are like, I want to work ten hours a week, right? Like that should be possible for people to do. So. Part of Super Friendly was an experiment for me in going like, can that work? You know, like where where are the edges of that? And then the name, like I had a totally different name picked out and everything, and and I did like branding and I did you know all that stuff and I showed my wife and she was like, I don't like it. I'm like, why? And I was like, trying to convince her. She's like, I don't know, man. It's just like dark and moody, and you just need something that's like super friendly. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right, yeah. And like, and I'm since I was a kid. I've always been into comic books. I love Superman to this day. Like it was one of the that's how I learned to read. I learned to read comic books with my grandparents. And I used to watch Superman 1, the Richard Donner film over and over again. I could recite every line in the movie like all the way through. Like when I was 4 years old and people would would ask me like how old are you? I would say I'm over 21. Because that's what Christopher Reeve says in the movie when they ask him, how old is he? So like, I just love that movie. I love superhero mythology. And so when my wife said super friendly, it immediately conjured like super friends. And I was like, well, that's the same idea of like, you know, the super friends aren't employees. (laughs) You know, like Batman's not an employee, but they come together when they need to, to solve problems that they couldn't do on their own. I'm like, it it just, it fits. So, you know, I stuck with it and uh, people seem to like it too. I love that. So we're talking about the, you know, speaking of, super friends and superheroes we're, we're talking through sort of the the story arc right and so yeah i would love to know what these 10 years have kind of been like you know i think i love that you've kind of approached it in this sort of experimental kind of approach but let's be real you said you had a baby on the way you're moving to a new city there's a lot of tension in that right and what if things don't go well? So maybe kind of walk us through what that journey has been like. And, you know, I'd love for you to also, I mean, you're killing it right now. So I'd also love for, for you to have a moment to brag about some of the major accomplishments you had over time. Cool. I, I, I hope that that also means that, like, I could talk about the pitfalls, too, and the, the parts where it's, you know, it's been valleys as well. So some context before I, before I started Super Friendly, like I worked at a bunch of agencies. I had n- never had any intention of starting my own agency. I still kind of don't. <laughs> like I still am like, eh, I can take it or leave it. 
I always thought that one of my greatest skills was to be like a good lieutenant to someone else. Like I'm a good right hand person. I used to play in a band and that, that band had a lead singer and he was the one, he was the front man, you know, like he had, like he's the one to organize all the events. I was a really good like second in command to him. Like I would help him with all the stuff. I would help him organize the stuff, but I didn't want to be the person out in front, like doing any. So the idea of running my own shop, I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like I'm, I'm a really good like vice president. <laughs> so, so I never wanted to do it. When I started my own my own shop, it was mostly to stay home with my kid on the way. You know, she was she was born I think six months before I started Super Friendly. I wanted to hang out with her. I wanted to hang out with my wife more. I didn't want to be working twelve hours a day plus a commute, like any of that stuff. So really, V one of Super Friendly was can we put food on the table? And man, I did every project, any project that came in the door, I did it. I, I wasn't picky at all. I wasn't. It was like, can I put food on the table? My thought was at the time. This is 2012. I was making 90000 a year at the agency that I worked at. So what I thought was... So, we, so and that was in New York. We moved back to Philly. And I was like, well, Philly, the standard of living is lower. You know, The cost of living is lower. So if we could make 60000 a year, that'd be straight. Like That'd be great. 60000 a year divides evenly into 5K a month. So my thought was, the stretch goal was, if I can make 10K a month, we are set. We could put away in savings. We, could, you know, but the floor was $5,000 a month. So any project that came in, somebody's like, hey, can you do some video work? Uh, how much money you got? $5,000. How long do you think it'll take? A month. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> like, it didn't matter what the work was. Can you build a CMS? Sure. Yep. Like, you know, I'll figure it out. Cause it was like, cause that, that's what I was, I wasn't trying to build a business. I was just trying to go, can I support my family? And like that amount of money for that amount of work was reasonable. I could work 25 to 30 hours a week. I got a lot of, of time to spend with my family. I could still do good work for clients and be like ethical and reputable there. So that was that was a good balance. So the first three months, the first the first client, you know, how much money you got? 10K. Great. I think the work is going to take a month. Excellent. Let's do it. Next client, 10K for the next month. Next client, 10K for the, for the next month. Then the, the fourth client, I talked to them about the work. I estimated the work. I was like, yeah, I think it's about a month of work. I asked them about their budget. What do I, ex- I expect them to say 10K? They said, we have 30K for it. I'm like, oh, well, so this this changes things now, right? Like, because now I'm I'm in the spot where I'm like, well, I've been more than making ends meet, you know, for the first couple months. Now I could take this 30k job on, and I could coast for the next three months if I want, or I could just bank it and keep going. And, and you know, to this day, I'll say Super Friendly is still riding off that extra 20k. Like it, that, like just that amount floats you. Like it just floats you if you if you can keep building on that as an investment. So that was the strategy initially was like, let's just see if I can make it as a freelancer. I've always freelanced on the side of my full-time jobs, but it was always on the side. Never done it full-time. So that was kind of the first couple of months. And then what I realized after the first year is, well, if I can bring in other people too to work with me, I don't have to do all of this. I, can I or, am I a good organizer? You know, can I produce this stuff? Can I direct this work? And that's kind of what started that super friend model is once I started doing that, I realized, oh, that not only alleviates my time, but we could actually sell that for more money because it's more valuable. And it's more valuable when we could say not only, oh yeah, we could put an information architect on this project, but we could put an information architect that has the particular specialty that you need. And you're not going to get that from any other like, oh, you're a higher ed institution and you need somebody who used to be a teacher. We got it. Like, oh, you're a you're a marine biologist, you know, that needs this particular skill. We got it. I don't have to employ it full time. I just have to know the person and I have to ask the person. And so that's been part of the interview process for Super Friends is what do you need in your season of work? Some people need cash. Some people want mentorship, though. Some people want an opportunity to work with a type of client or a type of team. Like, so I learned that there are lots of different incentives that people have. And it's not just cash. I thought, well, you guys got to pay people a ton of money 
But I'm like, no, some people, you know, they want a reasonable amount of money, but they also want something else other than that, an opportunity, a chance, a, a place to try things, a place, you know, a place to experiment. And that's different for every person in what season that they're in. You know, so that's been part of the interview process with Super Friends. So it kind of rode along like that for a couple of years. And then one of the things that happened through that was I started an apprenticeship because in the first year, my brother-in-law, uh, my wife's younger brother, he's always been like, like he's always had a job every year, but he's never had a career. So he's always had like, you know, he built pools one summer and then he managed like a convenience store one year and then he like worked retail another year. But he was like, I'm tired of doing this. I have a girlfriend. I want to propose to her. I want to move out of my mom's basement. Like I'm, you know, I'm 24 or whatever he was at the time. Like I can't do that making 11 bucks an hour somewhere. Could you teach me how to be a web developer? Okay. And the, the deal that we made was, you know, he was, he knew how to do construction. I'm really bad at that stuff. This is when we moved back from Philly. We moved into an old church that was really run down. And the deal that he made with me was, if you teach me how to be a web developer, I will renovate your house for you to the point where you could move into it. And we're like, great. That's awesome. What a great deal. So he, you know, he helped us with, his, with our house. He got a couple of friends, like got it move-in ready. And then after that, once we moved in, I was like, well, just hang out with me for a couple of days a week. So he would come into the office every day, office meaning a spare bedroom in my house. You know, and he would just, I would teach him like, here's what HTML is. Here's what CSS is. Here's what JavaScript is. And give him little assignments here and there. I don't have a rubric or a curriculum or anything. But then I would like bring him onto projects with me. Hey, can you build the footer, you know? And then, and then it started to be, hey, can you build the header and I'll pay you 200 bucks on this? Hey, can you build this page and I'll give you, you know, 800 bucks for that? Like, hey, can you build this site, you know, for me? I'll give you a couple grand for that. So we started to build. And then af around nine months in, we realized like, well, he has like a good enough body of work that he could do a portfolio, create a portfolio. And we started shopping that around. I started calling friends. Hey, agency owners. Hey, you need a developer? I trained, I trained him. Like, you know, the work is good if you trust me. And he got a job at an agency in town. And that's what kicked off an apprenticeship. You know, so I started bringing on more apprentices because again, same thing. It's back to the thing we talked about before, man, design, like just being able to write a little bit of code, push some pixels around the screen. You know, all of a sudden you go from making $11 an hour to $45,000 a year. You know, like that's, that's transformative for people. So that's what started the apprenticeship program. I'll, I'll stop there. There's more to share, but I'll stop there and see if you have any questions or comments. Yeah. Look, I mean, that, that whole story puts like a smile on my face, man, because it's, it actually exemplifies even the whole like super friend model that you're talking about, where I think you said something that, and you provide an example of something that really hits the nail on the head with, right? I think part of it is people are motivated by learning, right? Like the money is actually, I mean, the money is definitely a part of it at some point, but once you get to a point where you know, this is something new and interesting. You're excited about the opportunity. Yes. And I think that sort of speaks to even how you're talking about bringing different people on that may have been in different sort of functions. And so I love that. And I like, I don't know, like for me, I've always, even in like, you know, I work in, in house, right? And so I even think that's the case for, you know, my designers, right? Like, obviously there's the, it's applying sort of the design work, but it's about learning new skill sets. Yes. You know, seeing yourself, you know, change and transform over time. And so that's great. And I, I think one of the things that I, I also love about this story is the moment you kind of got off of sort of doing it as a side project, it allowed you to think about the possibilities, right? So that's great. What's up, everybody? It's Harrison again. I'm sure if you haven't heard by now, I just released the Technically Speaking Product Design Glossary. 
It's 118 need-to-know terms centered around the ins and out of user experience design. The best part about it is that it's a free download. Head on over to technicallyspeakinghw.com or our Instagram for more information. So let's jump to 2022. And so most of what you do, is it centered around like design systems yeah, or, or right. is it just a wide gamut of work? Maybe yeah, kind of dive into why the focus on that. Yeah, totally. So we made that change around 2018 or 2019. The work that we had been doing, I think that every agency does design systems, right? Like every designer, I think, especially if you're formally trained, the, the work is systems work, right? Like that's the work. Same thing for, for engineers too. We just started calling it that, you know, like five years ago, 10 years ago, it just started to catch. And so we were already doing that work. We just didn't call it out. And we want, and for all, all the super friends that were working at Super Friendly at the time, like that's the work that we wanted to do more of. So one of the things that I, I used to coach agency owners to, you know, somewhere along the way, I like experimented with a coaching. And one of the things I used to coach around was pricing and positioning. And one of the things I used to teach is that narrow positioning actually draws more clients to you. If you are a full service agency, it's a really difficult business to run. And that's what Super Friendly was doing. We weren't full service, but we were full service digital. So if somebody needed an app, we'd make an app. If somebody needed a website, we'd make a website. If somebody needs a microsite, if they needed an interactive annual report, like whatever it was, that's hard to maintain because now you're trying to field all these different things, different projects, different budgets, different sizes, different teams. Like it's a lot to manage. And so it's doable. It's just hard work, you know? And I'm like, I think there's easier work out there that's more valuable for clients. And then in return can be more valuable for us. So in 2018, I think it's 2018 or 2019, something like that. We just said like, let's call a spade a spade. Let's just say we're only doing design system because that's the work that we want to do. That's the work that we're trending more toward anyway. And that ever since we did that, our pipeline has been so full, like just so incredibly full. And it's weird because there's a lot of agency owners don't do that or a lot of freelancers don't do that because they're scared. You know, there's a lot of fear to going like, well, if I say I do, I only do this thing means I don't do these other things. And am I just shutting the door to those leads? And the answer is, yes, you are. But you're making more room for the right kind of clients for you, you know, like and that's a scary thing to do to, to align that way. But it pays off, you know, like nine times out of 10, I've seen it pay off for me and also for, for other agencies. So that's kind of where we, we went all in on design systems. And the nice thing about narrow positioning like that is that when you're positioned so narrowly, you can start to dive into the details of that kind of work. So now like every niche that I, that I have found, you know, whether I've explored it or just observed others doing it, it's endless. You know, like, like I'm writing a book on design systems right now. And I'm like, I could write eight books. Like, I, I have to decide what doesn't go in this book, you know, because it's, and I feel like that's true of any topic, photography, videography, you know, WordPress, you know, you name the topic. If you spend time to focus on it, you can just explore it forever, you know, and, and you start coming up with new theories and new connection points and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So since we've done that, it's been gangbusters for Super Friendly. And that's when I decided from a business standpoint, well, let me see how far this model scales. So prior to that, We've probably been doing, you know, anywhere from like five to 10 projects a year. And at that time, I was the director on every project. Like I was leading all the projects. And I decided like, well, in order for Super Friendly to grow bigger, I can't be on every, there's a limit to the projects that I could do. So I started to experiment with like, well, how do, you know, how can other people get involved and remove myself from the client work and also remove myself from business development too? Because I realized I wasn't doing a good job at either of those things. So we scaled last year two years ago, something like that, to 75 people, right? We had seven. So it's like running a 75 person agency. And one of the things I learned about that was we made the most revenue we've ever made and we made the least profit we've ever made. Like it just, the, the, the lines were going the opposite directions. 
So six months ago, I I shut it down. I basically kicked everybody out and said like, hey, we got to pause doing this. And I'm back to doing client work for the last six months. And, you know, just to see like, because we scaled a bunch of things and a lot of those, those things were the wrong things, you know, and that's what I learned. So I'm like, okay, back to, back to basics a little bit. And that's what I've been doing for the last six months with Superfun. Smaller teams, yeah. smaller projects, but deeper with clients. Right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of learnings from that. Right. And I love that too, because the focus allows you to not luckily fall on sort of like the $30,000 floater, but everybody's that, right? Like everyone's throwing that 30K. I'm, I mean, obviously now it's a lot higher, but I think that's sort of a, a good sort of lesson that come from that. So like, just real quick, I want to touch on design systems, like at a high level, maybe kind of give us like an idea of like what design systems were when it was a bit more ambiguous and sort of what does it look like now in, in, in 2022? And what does it look like moving forward? Design systems grew out of style guides, right? At least in the in the digital space. So a lot of brands saw the need to like have a style guide. Like these are our fonts, these are our colors, you know, these are the things that we need to use. But there was no way to like take action on those things, right? It's like normally that's a PDF that gets distributed. And you see the results of that. Every brand, you know, every big brand that you work for, they have their their red. But then on all the products, the red is a little bit different, you know, here and there, or they're blue, and it's a little bit different. And so, design systems, as as we talk about, as are in, in the industry now, and Super Friendly has a very specific definition of it. When we talk about design systems, it's not just like generally a system for designing, like even though that's accurate. We talk about design systems as a package managed, version controlled software product that is a dependency in apps, websites, anything digital. So, like, it's a very technical piece of software. And that piece of software connects all of the digital pieces of an organization. And the reason for that is because when something changes, you need everything to be connected to do that well. For example, lots of companies have rebrands, right? And, and some big companies, their rebrand is basically like, we changed the color of our buttons. Right? That's, <laughs> that's their rebrand. But to change the color of their buttons, now you have a thousand apps that you need to update. I've seen companies be like, well, that's going to be a $60 million effort over two and a half years. Like, dang, just to change buttons? Are you kidding me? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What? If you have a design system, that's a two-week effort. So two years versus two Mm. weeks. And it's because because of connections. Uh, And that's that's the thing about systems is systems have to be connected. So that's what we help clients do. We help them connect their systems. And in the future, I think that's going to be, you know, the phrase that is coming out a lot is the idea that design systems are systems of systems, which is cool. And I think a design system is a system within the larger system of a digital organization. And so I think in the future where that's going to go is a design system isn't just going to connect your coded components and your design files and all stuff, but it's also going to connect your CMS or to your digital asset manager or to your delivery pipeline or to your content model. You know, all of those things are going to be connected in a larger system and a design system is going to be a piece of that. But I think that's where organizations are really going to see the benefit of, of digital transformation and of change is when you when all of those things are connected, you really can move at scale. And that's the point of design systems is to help big enterprises move at scale. Yeah. Is that something you're thinking about? Because I, I mean, it feels like it does. It feels like software at this point, right? Like it feels like something that should be centralized, that is central to product teams, product, central to, you know, in-gen marketing. Yes. 
And so is that something that you're kind of working on now? Like, I'm, I'm super curious. Absolutely. And, and mostly just poking at it, right? Because like, there are yeah. things like one of the spinoffs of Super Friendly is a company called Arcade, because we have been every client we work with needs design tokens as a centralized thing that's outside of their system that can be in one place. So that if, if, you know, if our brand yellow changes, we change it in that one place and it cascades out everywhere. We've been waiting for companies to do that for years. And then finally, we just got fed up with it. So let's just build something, right? So our thing is in alpha, you know, it's, it's very early on, but we're starting to poke at some of those ideas to go like, how can we centralize this? And it's not just about the tool building. It's about, and what's the workflow that comes with it? How do you teach that? How do you coach that? How do you train that? What's the education part that goes with it? And then there's a bunch of stuff that I see a bunch of other people scratching at that I'm like, man, I, I don't even like, I know this is a part of it somewhere, but I have no idea how. Machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence, using automation to be, de- you know, design, no code tool, like all of that stuff is connected somehow. Yeah. Somebody's going to put those things together. I'm thinking about it, but I don't know how they fit together. Somebody's going to put those things yeah, together. Yeah. And it, like, to me, that's, that's an inevitability. I love that. Last season, I had Dominique Ward. She's the head of operations at Atlassian. And so she was talking about how design systems is a part of the operations there, which is actually like, for me, I was like, oh, interesting, right? Because before it was like something, you know, we were talking about the history, right? Something that design maintained and then engineering got involved in it. And then we start seeing that when there's big rebrands and there's other folks that need to get involved. And so when you think about like the onboarding process, like operations totally makes sense, right? And so then what happens after that, right? Now you're having these discussions around design systems, potentially even at an executive level. And so it's really, really interesting to kind of see like one one sort of anecdotal kind of story, which was really interesting uh, at my last company, it was called Base, it was a startup company. And, you know, I was located in Bay Area, and then the engineering team was located in Poland. And so I was like, man, this is like super inefficient. We spent like a year trying to build a design system, we finally launched it. And eventually the company got acquired after I had left. And I remember one of the engineers coming back and saying, hey, man, because we built that design system, we just typed in a few colors and we were good to go. That's it. You know, and I was like, man, that is, that's mind boggling to me. Um, But it just shows how putting in that work can save a lot of time. I mean, that's obviously just one example. Yeah. A lot of clients come to us and they, they ask us to help them build a tool. Any good set of designers and engineers could build the tool. That that part's not the hard part. Building the components, setting up the Figma libraries, all that stuff, that's important stuff. But you know, you you, yeah. you give designers and engineers some space and they can do that stuff. What we help do is we help institute the practice of that. Like the book that I'm writing right now, the working title is Design Systems as a Practice, because that's the thing that really like takes action. And and what you're talking about with Dominique, that like design systems have to be in operations. It has to be integrated into financial allocation. Those are the systems that it needs to touch and needs to be weaved into. So that's the part that we bring value to the table. We go like, we'll help you set up the practice. What are the workflows? What are the rituals? What are the ceremonies? Who does what? Who does them when? Like that's the part that that's a little bit harder to figure out, especially at scale. Um, so the components are just the base level. It's the tip of the iceberg. But even that is so powerful. But then you build the practice on top of it. And now you have organizations that are designing quickly, shipping products, creating customer value, just experimenting, iterating, making better things. That's why I like design system work is like when you see the before and you see the after, it is drastic. Two years to two weeks. Like it's you just see it so clearly. And I, I love seeing that. Yeah. So look, just kind of moving forward, what are you looking forward to in 2022? Like what's coming on later in the year? I'm looking to 
help. <laughs> you know, like I think I think that's my ethos, right? Is like I, I want to know where where I can make an impact, where super friendly can make an impact, and who who needs to be involved in that. So um, certainly, design systems work. Why I like it is that it it has impact at scale. You know, it's not just a thing that helps like a team. It could help a ten thousand person organization like do better, and not just efficiency, consistency. Like those are the main promises of design system. But the thing that I I talk about a lot that I don't think a lot of people talk about is like design system should be a relief. It should make work more fun. Because I think if people are having fun at work, right, that changes the game. That's different than like, we shipped more product this year. Like, great, you made a bajillion more dollars. Like you had a, a bajillion dollars already. But when you have more retention though, that's something. When people are happier at work, like those are the things that help the planet. You know, like those are the things that, that help all of us, you know, and, and there's no limit to that. Like that doesn't run out. So those are the things that I'm, I'm looking for. It's like, how can we do that better? How can we do that better on our teams? How can we do that better evangelizing that to our clients? So those are the, th- those things that I'm kind of focused on in, in 2022. I'm realizing that that doesn't have to be at scale. That's a hard, hard lesson for me to learn. But I think that can happen one by one, one team at a time, one client at a time, you know, one, like, one person at a time. So that's what I'm looking at is like, how can I personally and the company that I run, how can, how can we have an impact in the world and help people, you know, help people just have more, if they're going to do this for 40 years, like, might as well have fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's solid advice. Because I usually ask the guests, what's the advice? But I feel like that is very good advice as well. Do you plan on dropping the book this year? Or, you know, what, what is the timing on that look like? Yeah, so I'm publishing it with Rosenfeld Media. And the slated timing on it is early 2023. So I've got 10 chapters to write. I just missed my third chapter deadline today. I was supposed to be done with it today. I'm way behind on it. So 2023 seems likely, although we'll probably be releasing some sneak peeks of it, you know, a chapter here and there, a snippet here and there as part of the marketing effort and part of the like, you know, let's get people excited about the book and and as a way for me to get more ideas to kind of put in the book too, to just test test some of those out. Yeah. And how might folks find you on the internet and and just kind of follow up on that progress and some of this amazing thought work that you've been able to kind of walk us through today? Twitter is my main thing. So Dan Mall on Twitter, DM me and my DMs are open. So people can DM me. I'm really bad about email. So don't email because I won't email back. And my holiday break project, we'll see if it actually goes through is I have I've had in my head for a long time, like a new website that I need to have. So it's in my head. I'm just like, I'm going to try and crank it out over these next two weeks. Just like put my head down and, and do it. So hopefully I'll have a new danmall.com. Right now, there's not a lot there, but I have a new danmall.com that collects a bunch of this stuff that I've been doing for a while. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really invigorating and enlightening conversation. Again, thanks a lot. Oh, so cool. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> 